Welcome to The Catholic Perspective, a podcast brought to you by rcspirituality.org. Enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome, everyone. I'm here with Father John Pietropoli. I'm Father John Bender, and we want to talk to you today about an excellent novel, Brideshead Revisited. And Father John, I know this is a favorite of yours. I do remember you, the the story you told the first time the first time you read it. I think you read it um, on the airplane on the way somewhere, and on the airplane on the way back. You read it twice. I did you loved it so much. Um, but so great, Father. If you could please give us a maybe a little. Well, why we even? Why would we even read this? I mean, why? Why Brideshead Revisited? Why maybe even novels in general? Sure. I think it's a great place to start to zoom out a little bit and ask that question. Why should we even read novels? And maybe even as a Catholic, should Catholics read novels? And if so, why? So I was thinking about this a lot recently for some of the classes that I'm teaching here in, in Cheshire at our seminary here about how in a sense, there are really only two narratives. At least this is how it seems to me. So a narrative meaning that this overarching structure that gives meaning or that explores the meaning of reality. So you could look at it as a kind of as an overarching structure or maybe as a foundation sure. on which other edifices can be built. But it seems like there are only really two. So one is the true narrative, which is God's narrative. So we're created in the image and likeness of God, created good, created out of love and for love with an understanding that can understand reality, a mind that can enter into relationship with reality and actually know reality as God has created it with a will to be able to choose what is good. So to choose love with emotions as well that God gives us to move us out of ourselves towards love, towards self-gift in love. And we know that that narrative, of course, was attacked by Satan. So you have created good, but then we're fallen. Sin has entered into the picture and thrown things off of kilter. But then at the same time, the story doesn't end there. We're redeemed. As well, we talked about this a little bit the other day when we were talking about uh, the Bible, the the story of the Bible. So- there's that narrative, which is the true narrative. And then you have Satan's narrative, which we're very familiar with, right? Yeah. Uh, did God really say, don't do this? If you do this, you'll be like God. You can seize immortality, happiness for yourself. That's basically his narrative, right? Which in the end is just kind of taking God's narrative and warping it. So the reason I'm saying all this is because I think there's something about a good novel that really intensifies the narrative of reality, the narrative of life, how we're able to actually enter into the meaning of of existence in a very concentrated way in a novel. Because for us, I mean, our story takes place over many, many years, right? In our lives. But in a novel, it takes place in a few hundred pages or, you know, if it's a Russian novel, maybe a thousand pages. (laughs) But still, it's, it's somewhat concentrated and you can... You can actually reflect then on the arc of of the story. So I think whenever we're reading a great novel, a few different things are happening. We're looking at ourselves in a mirror in a sense. We're seeing ourselves in some way reflected in the character, just like we do in the great biblical stories. Right. 
as well. It's yeah, the same thing. Yeah, you identify thing. with yeah, characters, experiences, certain moments. Absolutely, yeah. And then we can actually process, become aware of and process our own emotions in a very safe space because there are experiences we can have via a novel vicariously that we're never going to have in real life. Thanks be to God, right? Like we talked about crime and punishment, right? I mean, there's some experiences in there of Raskolnikov, for example, that thankfully most of us will never have. Right. But at the same time, there's a deep human truth in his experiences that will find echoes in us. And so we can experience it vicariously through the novel. Sure. And then it's just a lot of fun too. I mean, a great novel is just (laughs) <laughs> so much fun to read. But I think there are different layers of, of importance and different layers of meaning when we read a novel. Yeah, and I think that's why I, we can say some novels can be inspirational, some can be motivational, some can be tragic, right? Some can be prayerful, spiritual, is because of the the realities that exist or that are being expressed through the characters in, an, in a good novel. Um and that we kind of relate to. And I think in the same way, we can also, a lot of times we don't connect with some characters or some books. Right. Um, and, and maybe it's because the story doesn't reflect our own experience or it, we just, we just haven't connected, you know, with, with the types of. Yeah. Excellent point. And you mentioned the story that I had told you about the first time I read this book. So it yeah. was actually on a plane from Madrid to Mexico city. <laughs> When I was going to mega missions for the first time, I had just been ordained a priest three months before and I was going to Mexico for the Regnum Christi Holy Week missions there. And what struck me the first time I read this book was the theme of, of God's mercy, just pursuing each person. So I get there, you know, I'd heard maybe, I don't know, 10 confessions in my life before that. (laughs) I get there and it's five, six, seven, eight hours of confessions every day. Yeah. For a week. For a week. Yeah. In places where people maybe hadn't been able to go to confession for a year, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. Wow. So the book kind of encapsulated that whole experience. Yeah. So it gave words to everything that I experienced. So that on the way back, I said, I got to read this again. (laughs) (laughs) So I read it again. And it just helped me to to process, you could say, what had just happened in missions. That's beautiful. That's awesome. Um. Well, why why don't we dive into some of those maybe some of those experiences or 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 some of those themes that that it did give words to you know that I think that people might be really interested in hearing about. Sure, yeah. So one of the things I forgot to mention when I was talking about we were talking about crime and punishment is it's probably a bit of a spoiler alert. Oh, <laughs> I'll try yeah, not to true. give too much away. <laughs> I didn't think about that either. <laughs> I mean, crime and punishment not so much because you basically know what happens right, right. from the very beginning here. There's some twists and turns. I'm going to try yeah. to keep some some mystery about it so we don't give away the whole plot. But just as a warning, there may be a bit of a, a spoiler element here. So the novel is it's structured in a very interesting way. There are three main parts to the novel. And so the first one is et in Arcadia Ego. So basically, I'm in this kind of this state of paradise. And so it follows the main character, Charles Ryder, through his developing relationship with Sebastian Marchman and his family. And they're a family of of old Catholics in England in the 1920s. So this is a time when Catholics in England, you know, hopefully at some point we can talk about Edmund Campion and the other English martyrs. Yeah, who are persecuted to death. 
a few hundred years earlier. By the 1920s, Catholics weren't persecuted per se, but they were still viewed with a lot of suspicion Mm -hmm. in England at that time. And so the Marchman family is this very old, very wealthy Catholic family that's managed to keep the Catholic faith over Mm -hmm. the intervening 300 years. Charles Ryder is this young agnostic atheist at Oxford who meets Sebastian, who's from this Marchman family, and they become friends. And then he gets to know the family. So this first part is really just about Charles Ryder's kind of his world opening up, his discovering just everything he hopes for in life, you know, excitement, the potential of romance, all these different elements. The next part of the book is this all falls apart. And the next part is called Bride's Head Deserted. So maybe we should stop here for a second. The reason the book is called Bride's Head Revisited is because the Marchman family lives in this beautiful mansion uh, somewhere in Wiltshire, I believe, in England. Castle level mansion. Yeah, castle yeah. level mansion. Yeah. In fact, you know, when they, I think when they did the movie, they filmed this at Castle Howard. Oh, up really? In York. Yeah, yeah. So it's supposed to be a, a castle. Um, and it's called Brideshead because there's a river there called the Bride. The Bride, yeah. Now keep that name in mind, right? Because right. we'll come back to that later. It's really important. So the second part of the novel is called Brideshead Deserted. And that's where the Marchman family basically falls apart. Right. So the father of the family, Lord Marchman, he has run off to Italy. He's living with this actress in Italy. So he's he's abandoned his family. Um, then one of the girls, Julia, one of the Marchman girls, who's about 20 or so, ends up marrying a divorced man um, outside of the church. So she kind of leaves right. the Catholic faith. Sebastian ends up in North Africa as an alcoholic, a pretty serious alcoholic. Yeah. So- Everything seems to be falling apart, and the house itself, Bride said, this beautiful country mansion is deserted. The third part of the novel is called A Twitch Upon the Thread, and that's really the story of God's pursuit through mysterious and very subtle ways of the different characters in the novel, bringing yeah. it back to himself. But I want to stress that word subtle because this is such a subtle novel. It's not overt. Right. Religion is not overt in here. God is not overt. In fact, I tell the brothers when they read this book or anybody who reads it, you have to read the last page of the novel very carefully. Read it three times, please. Slowly and carefully. Yeah, you did tell me that when I read it. Or else we missed the whole point. Yeah. And we still miss some things we just figured out recently, right? I mean, possibly some interpretations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, So, okay. so, So then, so the context of that then. Um, what are some of the themes that you think maybe this subtle, uh, subtle themes that kind of play out through, through the book, right? I mean, I can think of, you know, I, it's, it's interesting. The characters are all really interesting and, and they're different. And Evelyn Waugh does an amazing job of, of relating them together. You know, Charles, Charles ends up having a relationship with each one of the Marchman family members, some better than others. Right. Um, and it's kind of a story a little bit too of his, maybe of his journey, right? Uh, his being called back or called to the Lord um, in different ways. But do you, are there any themes you want to? Sure. Maybe we'll start with that actually, yeah. because I think it's really interesting. It ties in with the name of the house and the name of the novel itself. So Brideshead, obviously, is a reference to the Catholic Church. Right. So the, the church is the bride of Christ. 
Christ is the head of yeah. the bride, right, right? right? So right there, you have a very interesting image. And then you have the image of water, of the river bride. So you could think there mm-hmm. of this, this river of living water welling up to eternal life, John right. chapter seven, or the book of Revelation, right. the river running through the city of God at yeah. the end. Yeah. And, and if I could just jump in there really quick, because sure. they do talk about the, the castle has a cupola, right? And it was a direct image, a direct connection to St. Peter's. Um, in in Rome, in in, in uh, for the, the Vatican, right? And I think it's also important to mention that these these are intentional allegories, right? I mean, it's not something that we're just like coming in now and kind of pulling out. I think the different symbols that you're going to mention or the, the things that you're pulling out are, are intentional in in the novel, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, I would agree, and that's why it's important to read it so carefully because yeah. they're just little hints that. Wah drops in here. So he talks about how um, there's enough room in this house for all the different guests who are there. And the guests are all different at different times. They're very different people, but there's room in the house for them. They fit in the house in different ways. Charles himself becomes more and more intrigued by the house, the beauty of the house, the history of the house. So you could say the house is in and of itself sort of a character in the novel. Oh, interesting. Which I think right. is very interesting. Yeah. And you have that in a few other novels too, you know, The Hound of the Baskervilles, Baskerville Hall is like that. But this is so evident that the, the house itself is, it's just a house, right? A beautiful house, but it's also standing for something yeah. else, something more. So I think along those lines, the theme that stands out the most to me probably would be the theme of God's providence. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean the way that God is always working to bring us back to himself, closer to himself. Sort of like John 5, 17, where Jesus says, I'm always at work. My father is always at work. And even Lenoir himself, when he's describing uh, the theme of the book, he said it's basically about uh, the theme of divine grace working in the lives of this group of disparate but closely connected people. Mm Mm-hmm. And the name, I think, of the last section gives us the key to the entire novel. So the name of the last section is a twitch upon the thread, if we're going to read it through this lens of God's providence. So there's a scene in the book where Sebastian and Charles are at Brideshead, this English manor, with Sebastian's family. And Sebastian, at this point, is running as fast and as far as he can away from Catholicism. Right. He's trying to get away from his faith. And he ends up getting just totally drunk one evening, comes in to the dining room where the family's sitting and makes a scene. That evening, Lady Marchman, his mother, afterwards is reading to the family members and Charles is there too. They're just trying to kind of calm down after this tumultuous scene. And she's reading a Father Brown story. So Father Brown by G.K. Chesterton. And in the story, there's a moment where Father Brown catches Flambeau, who's this famous jewel thief in France, who's also an ex-Catholic. He catches him in the act of stealing something, doesn't turn him in, hears his confession, convinces him to go to confession, hears his confession, lets him go. So the police come and the police say, you had Flambeau, why'd you let him go? And Father Brown says, actually, I didn't let him go. He said, I've caught him with an invisible line and with an unseen hook. And that line is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the earth and still bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Twitch upon the thread. Yeah. Yeah. And so 
later on in the story, after everything's fallen apart, you know, Sebastian's gone, he's an alcoholic, Julia's in this adulterous relationship, the dad's living with the actress, the mother's just died. Actually, Lady Marchman's died. The youngest child in the family, Cordelia, is talking to Charles. And she says, do you remember that story that mummy read all those years ago and Sebastian got drunk the first time? She said, God won't let them go for long. She said, my family's all fallen apart. They've all run away from yeah. God in different ways, but God won't let them go for long. And then she quotes that line yeah. from, oh, did, from, yeah. Yeah, from Father Brown. Yeah. yeah. And so for me, that's, that's really the whole story in a nutshell. That's awesome. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's also hopeful, right? I think in a world today where we all either ourselves or we have friends and family that hopefully can be pulled like a, you know, can be twitched upon the, the, the line, right? The yeah. Line so that they can come back. But I, I think, uh, you know, even, even Cor- Cordelia is a really interesting character in the book, right? I mean, I, I think even her name, if, if you look at it, you know, Cor is heart. You know? Yeah. And I definitely saw when I read the novel that she is, is a sobering kind of element in the entire family you know, brings a little bit of realism in and also like humor at times. And she kind of never wavers a little bit, right? Like she's kind of like the symbol of, of someone who is at peace with their faith and loves uh, the Lord and lives in that relationship. Right. Um, And I think at the end she ends up where she ends up, she's a nurse, you know, serving in the Spanish, in the Spanish civil war, you know, so a life of service towards, towards those in need. Um, what about, I mean, because you talked a little bit as well about the relationship uh, with their Lord. What what do you think, you know, could be an element there that, that comes out in, in the novel? Sure. I think a couple things there. I think one is that each one of us has a specific relationship with the Lord. You know, there's that great line from uh, Peter Sievold the German journalist who interviewed Cardinal Ratzinger a number of times. And he said the first time he interviewed Ratzinger, he, Peter Sievold, was an atheist at the time. He was a fallen away Catholic. And so he was coming in with goodwill, but with a little bit of aggression too, just to kind of see, you know, where is this, this Cardinal going to land on some of these questions? And he asked Cardinal Ratzinger, how many paths are there to, to God? How many different paths are there to God? And he was expecting Ratzinger to say something like, you know, there's only one and this is it. And it's got to yeah. look exactly like this. And Cardinal Ratzinger said, actually, you know, there are as many paths to God as there are people. Yeah. And Seawald said that just completely reframed his entire understanding of everything. And yeah. he actually ended up coming back to the Catholic Church. Right. And so it's interesting because obviously Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And the Acts of the Apostles says there's no name, no other name under heaven except his by which we'll be saved. At the same time, God has an infinite variety of ways of bringing us to himself through the mediation of Christ. And I think we see that in here. So think about Sebastian running as far and as fast as he can from God, from religion, from his family. And yet by the end, he's someone who's become very humble, very gentle, He's still an alcoholic. And in the book, it becomes clear he probably will never be cured from this alcoholism. Right. But he's caring for others. He's a handyman in a monastery. Yeah, he lives with the monks. The yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so there's a sense that he 
he has through all these torturous paths and he has been drawing or the Lord better said has been drawing him closer to himself. Then you have Julia. Right. So the same thing, Julia at the beginning is running and running and running and running from God. She's trying to, to cause scandal in a certain sense, anxiety. She's trying to prove that she's somebody important. Right. Towards yeah, like wealth, wealth and status were really important. Right, her, exactly. Right? So yeah. She was who even she willing to leave her faith to marry well. Absolutely. Right? And, yeah. and be okay in yeah. society at the status level. Right. And by the end of the novel, she actually, I think she makes the most important declaration and probably the two most important declarations yeah. in the entire novel. So we'll come back to those in a second. Uh, then you have Charles himself. Yeah. This atheist agnostic, not a very nice man for nearly all the novel, right? Kind right. of an unpleasant, very selfish, selfish. incredibly yeah. selfish man. And yet by the end, I don't want to give too much away, but by the end, <laughs> there's a sense God's grace has also right. found him in a mysterious way. So it just happens over and over and over again. Lord Marchman, right. same thing. Yeah receiving God's grace at the end of his life. Right. And that's really the catalyst kind of of Julia's, yeah. of Julia's uh, reversion, maybe, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about something here too with Julia, which is something she says towards the end of the novel. So Julia and Charles in this third part of the novel have formed a relationship with each other. The problem is they're both still married to somebody else. Right. So not a good situation, right? Um, and there's a moment where Julia realizes that what they're doing is wrong. Yeah. And she talks about sin in that moment. And I think it's really important because, you know, as Catholics, the Lord is asking us to hold different things together. So hold obviously compassion and love, but also hold truth, right? They're not, they're not dichotomies. They're not antithetical. They're actually part of God's, God's providence and God's love for us. So it's interesting to see in the book how Julia realizing what we're doing here is wrong. That actually opens the door to this avalanche of grace that's going to come. It's going to be very painful for for Julia and for Charles. But it opens up this incredible door to God and God's grace. So I think that's really important. When we talk about God's providence, we're also talking about objective reality here as well. Um, and then the second thing is she talks about God's mercy, actually. Mm. And she says, I cannot shut myself out from God's mercy. That's the one thing I can't do. Yeah. I'm a sinner. I'll always be a sinner, right? Like all of us, yeah. <laughs> the human race. But I can't shut myself out from God's mercy. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 And I, I liked one of the things she said at one point was as well to Charles, I think, and maybe possibly even in that same conversation was um, there is no holiness without suffering. Mm-hmm. Right. There's no holiness without suffering. And I think, you know, when you talked about paths to God, I think a pretty consistent path to God in all of our lives can be meaningful suffering, suffering that that unites us to Christ who has suffered for us. Um, and we see that in her for sure. And even in Charles, I would say, and probably even Sebastian. Yes, absolutely. Um, in his own way. Yeah, that's a great point, right? Because so much of that that experience is really discovering the meaning and suffering, allowing 
God to give meaning to that suffering, uniting it to him. And actually, that brings us to the last page of Brideshead. So I'm not going to say exactly what happens, but the last page actually speaks precisely to that point. So there's this line in here where Charles is kneeling in a chapel and it's a chapel in Brideshead, actually. Mm -hmm. It's in the house, Brideshead. And it's been closed. It's been torn down in different ways. It's been rebuilt. And so he has this reflection here, something quite remote from anything the builders intended has come out of their work and out of the fierce little human tragedy in which I played, something none of us thought about at the time. And every time I read that, I think of the story of Joseph of Egypt. Yeah. You know, his brothers, first they're going to murder him and then they sell him into slavery. So we could say that's not good behavior. They weren't good brothers. I think we could safely say that, that, right? And yet, years later, when Joseph, who's now the second most powerful man in the world, meets his brothers in this suppliant situation, and he could just have them killed instantly, and they're afraid that he'll do that, naturally enough. He says, you didn't send me here, God did. God, yeah. And then later on, he tells them, you meant what you did for evil, right? Because it's bad to try to murder people. It's bad to sell them into slavery. Yeah. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Yeah. And I think we see the same thing here yeah. with Charles. He's realizing this fierce little human tragedy, the suffering in which I played. None of us knew why at the time. We right. had no idea. Right. And yet God has brought something good out of it, although it's still painful. Yeah. And that's also important to remember. Right. The suffering is only going to be fully healed in heaven, not right. in this life. Right. Yeah. But God gives him a glimpse of the meaning. Right. Here. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think that's really helpful for all of us in our daily lives too, right? One thing that I love about that actually particular quote is when he talks about the builders, right? Who actually, who built it and had no idea of the story that would play out, right? Like, And I, and I think... That's also part of our lives. You know, those of us that are in ministry, those of us that are not. I mean, you know, even as parents, right? Family, families, yeah. and and Absolutely. friends, and brothers and sisters, you play a part in other people's lives. You build, in a certain sense, walls of chapels or in other people's lives that we we don't know how it's what the story is going to be, and the influence that you can have. Um, and, and the positive influence that you can have in so many people's lives when you're trying to do good and live your life according to God, you know? Yeah, I'm actually going to read that again, this quote, because yeah, I think yeah. it's so important what you just said. Something quite remote from anything the builders intended has come out of their work and out of the fierce little human tragedy in which I played, something none of us thought about at the time. And then he goes on to describe what that something is, it's actually, it's a tabernacle and a tabernacle lamp there. And then he says, it could not have been lit, but for the builders and the tragedians. And there I found it this morning, burning anew among the old stones. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really important the way you link that to, to everything that we do in our families, our relationships, ministry, apostle, whatever it is, we have no idea what the Lord is going to do with that, where he's going to take that, how that, is going to bring grace into people's lives, but he knows. Yeah. And yeah. that's enough that he knows. Right. Right. And, and he does, he, you know, he, he means it for good. He like means you it said, for bringing good. it back to, to Joseph and, and, um, in Egypt and, and all that. 
Well, I think, Father John, that's it for today. We're, our, our time is up, but, you know, I, I definitely feel like uh, we, we kind of just skimmed, skimmed the surface here with Brideshead. There's I think that's a fair so, assessment. Yeah, so many more angles and reflections that we could possibly do. So, uh, first of all, I think uh, everybody could read, read Brideshead if you have the time. It's definitely worth your time, for sure. And um, maybe in some future podcasts, we can go a little bit more into certain characters, certain situations um, that are, I think, just worth reflecting and and seeing how they relate to our life and how they can help us, uh, maybe even help us communicate as well, communicate the messages uh, of the truths of our faith or or just make us better people, you know, which, um, which is always a good thing as well. Yes, it is. So thank you, Father John, for your time and your reflection. Um, and we look forward to speaking about this sometime soon. Thank you. You have been listening to The Catholic Perspective, a resource from rcspirituality.org. Please visit our website and check out more great resources to help you pray, learn, grow, and go. Please join our team of digital missionaries by subscribing at rcspirituality.org.